Hello and welcome to the Plaza Central podcast. Stay informed about Latin America's most pressing political, economic, and social developments. Plaza Central is a production of the Latin American program of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Greetings, Feliz Año Nuevo, and welcome to the first episode of Plaza Central of 2024. I am your host, Benjamin Gadan, director of the Latin America program at the Wilson Center. I am thrilled to welcome our guest, our first guest of the year, my friend James Bosworth, codenamed Boz, a leading analyst of Latin America, author of the Latin America Risk Report, founder of the Hexagon Consultancy, columnist at World Politics Review, and most importantly, a new global fellow here at the Wilson Center. Greetings, Boz, and welcome. Thanks for the invitation. In a recent newsletter, Boz was brave enough to make 10 predictions about Latin America in 2024. Now, there were plenty of caveats, and he was clear that any single prediction was about 80% likely to happen. Still, it's a bold move. The economic trends in this region have been dependably grim for a decade or so, but that stagnation has made politics unusually erratic. Incumbent parties once enjoyed home court advantage. Now they're routinely shown the door. On the other hand, outsiders are no longer long shots in presidential contests. As we saw in far-right Jair Bolsonaro's election in Brazil in 2018, far-left Pedro Castillo's election in Peru in 2021, far-right Javier Millet's election in Argentina in 2023, and on and on and on. Polling, meanwhile, is not as reliable as it once was. The warming climate has made natural disasters more intense and more common. Meanwhile, the international context adds further uncertainty from Russia's war in Ukraine and the impacts on global food and energy prices in Latin America to tensions between the United States and China. So a hat tip to you, Boz, for your public forecasting. And with that, I'm going to try to have us go through all of these predictions in the short time we have allotted. So let's get started. Number one, Claudia Scheinbaum will win the presidency of Mexico. Okay, this one feels pretty safe. AMLO has had Teflon popularity, and Claudia is his longtime protege. You want to walk us through your thoughts here? Sure. Uh, a couple of comments. First off, it, it, it's safe, but to say anybody's 80% favored in an election is still bold, right? I mean, elections can, it, it, we're, we're six months out from the election. Things can definitely change. And so it's somewhat safe, but it's still, it's still a bold prediction to make this early on in any campaign. Regionally, as you mentioned, we've been in an anti-incumbent wave. And what's really interesting about this year is that four out of the six elections right now, we are predicting that an incumbent is going to win. You think it's going to win in El Salvador, Venezuela, Mexico, and the Dominican Republic. Um, and, and, and so this idea that we're, we're sort of hitting a quick wall or a brief break on the anti-incumbent wave is interesting. To Mexico specifically, though, uh, Scheinbaum leads in the polls. Uh, Lopez Obrador controls the the state uh, the state resources, and he is pulling strings to make sure that he can implement whatever he can to, to maintain control beyond this election. Um, and while I think the opposition had a great year last year, everything went right for them um, to actually pull off a potential upset. It's still Scheinbaum's election to lose. I mean, she, she's just that far ahead at the moment. Your second prediction is also about Mexico. You say, quote, homicides in Mexico increase. So help me understand this. I mean, you've just said that the incumbent party will retain power easily. Public security is arguably the biggest challenge for anyone in Mexico. So how can both these things be true? 
it, it's really shocking just how popular AMLO is. I mean, just given where Mexico's economy has been in recent years and what's happened with public security, AMLO already has presided over the most homicides any president has seen in over a century. And while there have been some minor declines in recent years, uh, numbers are still above where they were in 2015. Um, so, so I mean, we're still at very high homicide rate. Uh, the point of this prediction is homicides have trended downwards now, I think, for three straight years in a very small amount. Uh, I think that decline stops here. I think we see a slight increase. Part of it is driven not by national trends, though, by lo- but by local trends. Um, elections oftentimes in Mexico are a time for organized crime groups to go after municipal politicians uh, to try to extend their influence within states or within municipalities. And that's the sort of dynamics I think we're going to see in Mexico this year, which is going to make it a more dangerous place for, for citizens around the country. Your third prediction, President Abinader wins re-election in the Dominican Republic. Here again, you're predicting the incumbent party stays in power. You're actually predicting a president actually manages to win re-election in the Americas. I think in the last, I don't know, 12 or so elections, that's only happened in Paraguay. How will it happen in the Dominican Republic? It's going to happen in the Republic largely because the opposition has fumbled the ball. Um, I, I mean, yes, I, I, the president deserves credit. He's 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 overseen a a successful economy. He's made some strides on anti anti corruption issues. Um, but this is about opposition divisions. The opposition has been in a long term divided status between the former president and the other leaders of the op- main, major opposition party, um, and they're both running and they're going to divide any vote that goes against Abinader. And that is going to be simply very easy for uh, the president to, to, to exploit and to win this election. Number four, Argentina's economy will look better, lower inflation, higher growth by the end of the year. This, I think, will shock many of your readers. There are certainly tailwinds uh, that Argentina's new government is enjoying, rainier weather for its farmers, high demand for its lithium. Still, as far as I can tell, the country is broke and it's even at risk of hyperinflation. What am I missing here, Boz? Uh, I, I'm not predicting Argentine economic recovery that will last for decades. Um, I'm, I'm predicting that it, that it looks better at the end of the year than it looks currently. And how it looks currently is pretty bad in terms of 150% inflation, in terms of an economy that has been at or near recession now for 18 months. Um, it, things look really bad. And, and, and I think the, the initial boost that Malay is going to get from foreign investors, from the IMF, from people who just are, are living on hope, is going to give him 12, 18, 24 months of benefit of the doubt. Um, and, and we saw a similar event when Macri took over uh, in 2015, where you know he, he got some, some time of, of boost before everything fell apart again. Uh, Malay is very likely to follow that pattern. This is not a very positive prediction for Malay. It just happens to be a good year for him. Number five, Lula ends 2024 with a net positive approval rating. This, for anyone following Brazil closely, may not be a huge shocker, but anyone who had checked in on Brazil at the beginning of Lula's term might be surprised to hear that. We might recall that his return to power was greeted with an assault on Brazil's Congress, Supreme Court of Presidential Palace. Many observers feared paralysis in the divided Congress. Tell me about your optimism. Lula has returned Brazilian politics back to normal. I mean, it's not all roses for him, right? This is not where Lula was in 2004, 2005, per se. Um, but but he's re- he, he is not living in a crisis situation. Um, Bolsonaro has largely gone gone away from the major politics. He, it, Lula has managed to co-opt a portion of the Central. He's having fights with the members of Congress. There are times that Congress has overridden his veto. Not everything is perfect. But 
Brazilian politics has returned to normal and Brazil's economic economy is growing decently well at the moment. And I think those two things have brought Brazilians back to, to, to at least giving some support to Lula. Um, you know, this isn't his the peak of his popularity, but he's also not in the trough that so many other Latin American politicians, including Petro and Boric, are, are you know, have been facing in recent years. He, he seems to be, you know, managing the situation well. That's Gustavo Petro of Colombia, Gabriel Boric of Chile. Number six, Venezuela will not attempt to invade Guyana. It seems Nicolas Maduro would have us believe otherwise. He set up a new military district that includes the disputed territory. He's awarded citizenship to the 125,000 Guyanese who live in that region. Of course, he organized a national referendum that created a new Venezuelan state in two-thirds of Guyana's territory. He even mobilized his military recently in response to the deployment of a British warship. What am I missing here, Vaz? Maduro loses any war. I mean, that, that's, that, that, that's the simple analysis, right? If Maduro makes the mistake to invade Guyana, uh, at that point, the economic and the diplomatic and the military fronts, he loses all of those. Venezuela's military simply isn't capable of taking and holding this territory. Now, you work backwards from that logic. Maduro should know that this is not a winnable war for him. Um, he might be able to do some sort of offensive attack briefly, but he gets pushed back relatively quickly. And Maduro's a survivor. He's not someone who's going to who who has been known in the past to take big risks. And so the the, the fear that this is like an Argentine invasion of the Malvinas slash Falklands uh, in '82, Maduro's not known for taking that sort of foreign policy risk that would cause him to to then be ousted from power. Is, is what the end result would be. Therefore, he's very unlikely to invade. Number seven, no confirmed peace deal with the ELN in Colombia. Now, you mentioned President Petro's unpopularity just a minute ago. He's, of course, struggling to advance his bold domestic reform agenda. He, in the recent elections, saw his favorite candidates lose practically everywhere. I think his candidate for the mayor of Bogota finished third. So it would strike me that his total peace plan would be a priority for him this year and maybe his only chance at a positive legacy. Why do you see it unlikely that he'll reach a deal with the ELN? Part of this is about the fact that nobody's reached a deal with the ELN in seven decades. Um, I mean, this it, it's not an easy group to reach a deal with. Their their leadership is divided. Uh, their 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 organization at the base level doesn't necessarily always agree with the leadership. Many of the ELN live in Venezuela, and Venezuela has a lot of control over the negotiations and over the process that, that's going on. And they're not necessarily eager to to see a peace deal occur. Um, the ELN is just not easy to deal with in general. And so, you know, the, the base case is that there's no peace deal because there's no peace deal. Um, and, and, but, you know, I think Petro has shown himself also to just be very easily distracted um, by everything going on. And so it, it seems unlikely that Petro is going to jump in um, and make this peace deal. This peace deal that's never happened before is suddenly going to happen by the end of the year. I just doubt it. Number eight, Bernardo Arevalo remains president of Guatemala. Uh, Baz here, I think you're certainly out on a ledge. It's been hard enough to get him through this very long transition period. We'll see if he even takes office on January 14th. We're recording this on January 4th. And if he takes office, he'll have powerful forces arrayed against him, an opposition-dominated Congress, economic elites who seem convinced he's a communist who will end private property. Why do you think he could hang on for a full year in office? 
almost every president should hang on for a full year in office, right? And 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 so you know what's shocking isn't that I say it's eighty percent likely he he will hang on. It's that I'm at twenty percent that he might not. Um, and I think it speaks to the challenges that he faces going into this year, uh, in terms of the the the, the control that the his opponents have with various institutions, in terms of the economic elites who will be pushing against him. And I, I think Arevalo has shown himself very willing not just to take office and passively hope to hold on to it. He's going to fight for a better Guatemala. And that's going to mean he's going to implement anti-corruption policies that are going to target those who want to get rid of him. Uh, it's going to be a clash all year. So so as I said, it's not surprising that I think 80% they, they's likely to hold on. It's surprising that there's actually a 20% chance he's unable to hold on. That's a very high number for any leader um, and probably higher than any leader other than maybe Dino Boluarte in Peru this year. Number nine, migrant apprehensions in the U.S. remain above 125,000 per month in Q4 2024. Baz, I can't argue with you here. I am curious where in the region you see this crisis worsening. We have seen it obviously increase in Ecuador, given problems with organized crime. We've seen it increase from Haiti, Nicaragua, from political crises, Venezuela, as well. Where will be the countries that are sending migrants to the U.S. in 2024? I, I think, un- unfortunately, in spite of improving economies, etc., the answer is everywhere. Um, and that's not where I, what I, what I wanted to say, but, but you know, as you said, Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti, but there's also been big migrant surges from places like Colombia, Peru, Brazil in recent years. Um, you know, there's there, you know, there's push and pull factors to migration, and even in countries where things are going relatively well, um, there's still a pop. You know, the economic divide means there's a population that's very poor that they get that they get pushed out of the country, and they're looking for a place where they where they have opportunity. Um, I think that there's a lot of places. No one crisis is going to drive all of these migrants to the border. Instead, it's going to be month by month, large, you know, medium sized numbers from a lot of different countries coming to coming to the United States. So, and you know, unfortunately, it's that means it's not an easy problem to solve. It's not as if you solved one country's problem, this migration crisis would be over. Instead, it's a region-wide problem that has small little state and municipal level issues pushing people away uh, across the entire hemisphere. Oz, we're going to skip your last prediction since we're out of time. And anyway, it's about U.S. politics. Hopefully, there is a high percent chance you'll return to Plaza Central again sometime in 2024. Thank you for joining us. This was a lot of fun. All right. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Good luck, and we'll, we'll check in and see how you did. You have been listening to Plaza Central, a podcast about Latin America's most pressing political, economic, and social developments. This episode was produced and edited by Oscar Cruz. To learn more about our program, please visit wilsoncenter.org slash LAP. And please join us next time for another episode of Plaza Central, 